Thank you for joining the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast with your host, Clayton Craddock. Larry Lelly is a veteran Broadway musician. He's played drums and or conducted in over 40 Broadway musicals. Some of his Broadway credits include The Producers, Assassins, How to Succeed in Business, and Million Dollar Quartet. Larry has recorded and performed with Melissa Etheridge, Josh Grobman, Anne Hathaway, Nick Jonas, Vanessa Williams, Heather Headley, The Mamas and the Papas, Audrey McDonald, Neil Patrick Harris, Patti Lapone, Jerry Lee Lewis, Darlene Love, and the New York Philharmonic Orchestra. Larry is also a clinician for Yamaha Drums and Sabian Cymbals. Larry is currently the drummer on the Tony Award-winning hit, Come From Away. And I'm honored to have him as a guest on my podcast. Stay tuned. Welcome to Broadway Drumming 101. My guest today is Larry Lelly. He's done 15 million shows. (laughs) (laughs) Like I can't it. I can't list them all here, but we're gonna go over them one by one. <laughs> Thank you for being a part of this, Larry. It's it's great to see you again and, and it's gonna be great talking to you. Thanks, Clayton. It's good to be here. Well, the question I usually ask a lot of my guests, most of my guests, all of my guests is where are you from? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. Uh, I'm kind of from all over. I was born in Chicago and I grew up all around the Midwest mostly in Wisconsin and Minnesota. Um, and, and once I got out of, I went to college at University of Wisconsin in Eau Claire, which was a jazz school there. Uh, and I went for jazz performance and percussion and conducting. And then I lived in Minneapolis for three years and wait. I kind of outgrew that scene. Then I lived in Nashville for three years oh, and wait, outgrew wait, that. Wait. You're like, and now you're in New York and you're a Grammy winning <laughs> musician. <laughs> well, you said you grew up in the Midwest. Did you, yeah. were you part of a military family that traveled a lot or you just happened to wind up? No, no, nope. okay. just my mom had two kids and trying to make it happen. And we moved around a whole lot when okay. we were kids. Yep. Was there something that said that, that spoke to you that made you want to play drums? Yeah, it was what I wanted to do since I was born. They're my earliest memories. And there are pictures of me that I don't remember as a little kid, you know, with grabbing whatever and banging on whatever. You know, I was, it's just what I had a predisposition to do when I was born. And my mom said I was very active like that as a young kid too. Like just always wanting to, you know, move and groove and that kind of thing. You're, you have, do you come from a musical family? No, that's the funny part. Not at all. I don't one. Yeah. That my, one of my aunts was, did play piano and a little bit of trumpet, but it wasn't her main thing. It was just kind of something she did for fun. Um, apparently I have a great grandfather that I never met who was like a gypsy musician. He played every instrument and that's what he did, but I never met him. Uh, I never knew him, but he was the only one that we could find that had any musical you know, talents or skills or, or was doing it at all. Everybody else in my, I was very much like the odd one out in my family. They didn't know what to do with me. <laughs> Your mother brought you a drum set uh, or did she get you enrolled in a series of lessons? 
uh, yeah, well, I, the, at the school, I told them I wanted to play drums like in grade school. And they said, no, we've got too many drummers. So here's a trombone. Ooh. And so, yeah. And I, I really <laughs> struggled with that thing for like a year and I just didn't like it. It wasn't my thing. And luckily the next year we moved to a new school system and the band director at that school system, um, luckily was like, you know, we did our entrance exam or something on the, on the trombone. And I was like, I hate this thing. He's like, okay, well, what would you rather be doing? And I said, I want to play drums. He said, great. You can be in the percussion section. Great. And so I started getting, um, well, they, they first, they let me be in the percussion section. Then they realized I couldn't read music at all. So they had the teacher from the high school come and start tutoring me and a couple other young students who were showed an interest in drums and percussion um, privately, which was great because then I was like, oh, okay. And now I start to get how this is going. And then eventually I complained enough and, and my mom did break down and buy me a drum set eventually. And it was the best day of my life. I remember it to this day. And I sat down and instantly knew how to play. Really? And nobody knew, how, including myself, how I knew what to do, but I just did. It was great. Do you remember what kind of... What kind of drum set it was? It was. It was a, it was a Slingerland Red Ripple, like from the 60s, you know, a four-piece, like a jazz kit. And it had the, the cymbal mounted on the kick drum, you know, with that little suspension arm thing. Mm -hmm. And, um, I mean, it was the best. It sounded like crap because it was all <laughs> beat up and nobody had taken care of it or anything. But, man, it was the best. It was the best day of my life. Yeah. You were playing in the basement? During those times? Of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> did you play, you know, since you were in the Midwest, did you play in marching bands back then? When yeah. You were in school? Yeah. Once we, once I got into high school, that was part of the, the deal. If you were going to play in the concert band or the wind ensemble, you had to play in the marching band in the fall. And that turned out to be one of the best things for me because that led me into drum corps. I got really into it. And so I got into drum corps oh, and marched wow. drum corps for many years and played snare drum and, and the snare line. And it was like, just blew my world wide open. I was full time playing music, you know, 24 seven, basically. Which drum corps was it? I started out with the blue stars, which was one of the, the big DCI cores. And it was based in the town that I was in at the time, which was La Crosse, Wisconsin. And I only got to play with them for one year and they went bankrupt and I was so depressed, but luckily uh, the town also had a baton and drum corps. And so when the blue stars went defunct, the, the, the baton and drum corps was called warriors. They came and kind of, you know, grabbed all the drummers out of that corps and got us into the baton and drum corps. So I marched baton and drum corps for, I think the next three years or something. So What's, every summer we were touring around, you know, playing competitions and parades and all that kind of stuff. It was a blast. I loved it. Is there a difference with baton and drum corps? What's, what does that mean? Yeah, well, but baton and drum corps means you only have the drum line, the drum section, and a bunch of baton and color guard twirlers, color guard twirlers, you know, they, with the flags and batons. Mm -hmm. There are no brass instruments as opposed to regular drum corps for, you know, drum corps international, which is 
all the brass instruments. Mm-hmm. So it's a very different, it's a very different scene, but I was thrilled uh, because we still got to play all summer. It was all focused on just the drum line that we were the only ones who produced any music. So it was, we had, you know, a, a mallet section and then all the traditional drum core, I mean, drum line instruments, you know, quads and all the different pitched bass drums and the, the snare line and all that. Um, and all these pretty girls who were twirling batons and, and flags and stuff. And so I was in heaven. I was like, oh, this is great. <laughs> <laughs> what what uh, instrument did you play in the the uh, drum section? I played snare drum as well in the oh. in that core. Yeah. Now I know that there are some sections that play traditional and some play match. Did you play both, or did you play one style? In let's see, in Blue Stars, they started us out in tradi- with traditional grip, and that was my introduction to that because I had never. Um, really studied any kind of technique up to that point. But as soon as they went bust and I joined Warriors, Warriors wanted everybody playing match script, which was great because that way I could really develop more equally on both sides. So that's what we ended up doing. And that's what I played. Then I played match script for all of my high school years. I didn't, and then I switched again to traditional grip when I got into college because mm. I, because I got so into jazz. I was like a, the biggest jazz head ever. And all my jazz heroes were playing traditional grip. So I thought that's what you had to do. That's how you got the feel and the sound. And, you know, so I taught myself to play traditional grip once I got in college. When you were in, when you were in high school, since you had your drums in the, uh, in the garage or at the basement, did you have chances to play with other musicians and playing rock bands, country bands, uh, jazz bands? Yeah, it's yeah, a good question. I did. I, I formed a, a rock band, a he- like a heavy metal band, when I was in ninth grade with a bunch of my friends who were in the 10th grade. And we played, we had that band all throughout high school. For, I was in high school for ninth, ninth through 12th grade, so four years. And we had that band. It was in different carnations and people would come and go, but the core of the band stayed the same. And I, I, that's what I was doing in high school. I was totally into metal and, you know, whatever kind of music was popular in the 80s. I'm dating myself now. But <laughs> I was about to ask you that. <laughs> All right. So what was the name of the band? I'm curious. Uh, well, our first name was Fallen Angel. Okay. But then... Uh, a made-for-TV movie came out that was called Fallen Angel. It's a terrible movie, and everybody knew about it, so we had to change the name because it was like a really... I can't remember what it was about. It was so horrible. So we changed the name to... to what did we change it to? To Perfect Stranger. Okay. It was our eventual final name, I think. And who were your heroes back then? <laughs> your, your, well... Your, if, you, if your band could open up for one of your uh, heroes back then, who would you have preferred to open? Oh man, that's tricky. Cause it probably would have been like uh, Motley Crue or who else were we really into back then? Like poison rat. And those hair. Yes, rat. <laughs> rat. I think we went to see them in concert. Yeah. All those hair metal bands back then, you know, round and round. Oh, <laughs> yes. <man. laughs> I got to tell you, I never liked that stuff, man. I, I like yeah. Motley Crue. Uh-huh. It was Tommy Lee, man. That His yeah. feel and just, 
the oh, way he looked. Great they had some grooves too, man. Like oh. Dr. Feelgood and Yeah. She's got the what's that looks that kill? That looks shit that is kill. rocking, man. Ooh. Yep. Yep. But you know. Yeah, we were into all that, man. And Ozzy Osbourne, like stuff yes. that came before them too, like Ozzy Osbourne and Black Sabbath and yes. Alex Cooper and all that stuff. I mean, we were into all of it. Well, it's going back to when you got your first drum set. Who who were you listening to? And were there any drummers that, you know, made you say, man, that sounds cool. I want to play like this person. Well, I pretty much was trying to copy everybody that I was hearing. And back then we just, the radio was the biggest thing. That was, you know, I was living in a small town in Wisconsin and the radio, this was before MTV really. And, um, at least in my town, we didn't have it in my town that, at that point. So whatever I heard on the radio, I would try to copy. And it didn't really matter who it was or what kind of music was it, it was. I was listening and absorbing everything. Like my, my mom at that time was listening to um, country music back then. And so I would hear that, even though it wasn't something that I longed to play or whatever at the time, I would listen to it and absorb it. And I never knew who was playing drums on most of the stuff when you're just listening on the radio. But once I started um, being able to, to buy albums and going to the library and check out records, you know, um, I was really into the session drummers at the time. And I would listen to any, I, and I would look at the credits and check them out. And so they were all those guys like Steve Gadd and Hal Blaine, you know, uh, um, Oh, who was another really big one at that time? Jeff Even Piccaro. Gay. What's that? Jeff Piccaro. Yeah, Piccaro, of course. John Robinson. Uh, John, yes, JR. You know, all those cats who were playing on like all the pop records that were coming out at the time. So I totally got into that that stuff. And Gad really, once I figured out who Gad was and what he was doing, I mean, that really was just opened, it blew my mind. And try I started trying to really transcribe stuff that, you know, the to my basic notation at that point, my basic notation skills. I try to write out what he was doing. I just listened to it over and over and over again and try to figure out on my own what was going on, trying to recreate the, so the, the sounds. And I remember another one that blew me away was Terry Bozio. Mm. When I started getting- Missing persons. This, oh, wow. <laughs> Those parts were orchestrated. And I had to first of all figure out what could be making those sounds that he was playing? Because it wasn't just standard drum set sounds. Because he was using stuff like rototoms and different pitched bells and cymbals and things like that back then. And it still does. Um, so just whatever I could do to mimic all these drummers, which ended up being one of the best things for me um, with, with getting into Broadway, which is where, I'm, where we're eventually going, I'm sure. Uh, because I taught myself how to learn and how to play by listening and absorbing and recreating somebody else's playing. It taught me how to get into Broadway and be able to start subbing and sit next to a drummer and absorb what they were doing and go in and recreate what they were doing instead of being like, Oh, I'm the drummer and I'm going to do my thing. Cause that's how most of us get in is by subbing at first. So it ended up, you know, and I had no idea about that, but it ended up being one of the best things for me is learning by listening when I was a kid. When you were in high school, you were doing the 
drum and baton and or yeah. drum corps yeah. and playing in marching bands. Was there any thought of saying, you know, I want to go to college and study business. I want to, you know, I want to be safe. I want to go study chemistry or something like that. Did you have any other interests or was it just, I'm just going to be a musician and that's going to be it? Well, I didn't have really any other interests, but my family tried to push me that way saying, well, you know, music is very, it's very risky and you don't know if you're going to make any money and it's hard to get jobs and whatever. So maybe you want to think about a, a backup career, a backup plan, right? And I just never wanted to have anything to do with that. So I, you know, I struggled with it a little bit, um, as everybody may do, as a young person may do, when you're getting advised by people who are older than you, about this is what you should do. But I just couldn't, you know, my heart was just saying, this is what I want to do. I want to play and I'll figure it out. And if I can't figure it out, then I'll worry about a backup job or whatever, you know, a backup plan. Um, but I knew if I didn't at least try to do what I wanted, which was just make music, make a living by making music, no matter how that happened, I wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have been satisfied. I wouldn't have been happy. You know, I would have been always wondering what if it was that strong in me. And that's luckily what one of my, um, you know, kind of mentors said to me when I was about to strike out and, and go out on my own and say, okay, I'm going to be a musician. And, and he said to me, is it, the only, is it the thing you must do? And I said, yeah, I have to. And he said, that's how you know. That's what you need to do then. If there's no other doubt in your mind, if there's no other thing in your mind that you would rather do, he said, if, if you need to play and make music, then that's how you know that's what you got to do. That's great advice. Yeah, yeah. Got to give that to my daughter. Excellent. Good dad. Good dad. <laughs> Passing on this wisdom here. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, you know, I, I, I asked this question cause I had the same kind of situation when I was going to go to college. I was like, dad, I just want to go to Berkeley. And he's like, nope, you're going to study accounting. You're going to yeah. look at 1984. Look at all these jobs. And I was like, yeah. so I went and studied accounting. I hated it. Yeah. And of course I wound up playing music anyway. Yeah. Wound up becoming mildly successful. <laughs> <laughs> Not did you wildly. ever go to Berkeley, though? Did you no, ever end up going? No. I did not. I went to Howard University in D.C. Ah, well, that's cool, too. Yeah. Oh, I loved every There's minute. There's a good program there. You got like, a lot of good musicians there. But, uh, you know, speaking of Berkeley, why not Berkeley or Juilliard or uh, any other conservatory for yourself? Well, um, again, coming from where I was coming from. And I didn't, at that point, when I was just in high school and starting to decide this is what I want to do, I didn't have, I didn't come from money. We, you know, there was no money to be had and it was basically just scary. I had nobody that I knew that had actually gone to Berkeley or University of North Texas or Miami or any of the big music schools at the time that I knew of. Um, and so, and I was being kind of, um, what do they call it? I, I was, I can't remember what, I can't know, I don't know what the word is for this, but I was basically being groomed to attend the college that I ended up attending, which is the University of Wisconsin at Eau Claire, because the drum instructor there, the, the drum and jazz professor there, Ron Kieser, had met me 
when I was doing state solo and ensemble competition, you know, for band, for the classical, um, the band, the concert band and stuff like that. And he saw that I was, that I had some talent and he, they were smart. They would go out across the state and, you know, their, their band would tour and they would meet young players in high school and they would see developing talent and they would entice them to come to Eau Claire to, because they were trying to build that jazz department there. It was a really smart thing they were doing back then. And so they um, kind of threw a scholarship, you know, my way saying, we'd love you to come here. And I got another scholarship from my high school that if I went there, I would get this scholarship. So it kind of was natural for me to go there instead of, you know, going out and like, cause man, I couldn't even afford the $50 application fee for Berkeley. I remember getting the application. You had to do it all by the mail back then, you know, mm-hmm. and I got the application, I'm filling it out. And then it says, include your $50 application fee. And I was like, well, I don't have that. You know, my parents didn't have that. I couldn't even afford to apply there at the time. So I was very lucky that um, the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire ended up developing an, an incredible jazz program while I was there. I was a freshman when they hired their new jazz professor Robert Baca, and he took over the department and he, he developed that jazz program into one of the best in the world. And I happened to be right there at that exact time. I was very, very lucky to go there. Good question though. So university of Wisconsin at Eau Claire. Yeah. Uh, you studied jazz and you said you got really into jazz and you know, you started playing traditional grip. Did you graduate with a degree? in jazz performance or jazz studies or, or just music yeah. in general? Yeah. It's a, a bachelor of music performance degree. And then you, em- you have an emphasis in something and I did percussion and jazz. And then I also had an emphasis in conducting because I had this lofty dream that I would, you know, moved to one of the big music cities and conduct film scores. I thought that's what I was going to end up doing. Okay. Um, I didn't know what that meant either. You know, they were just ideas that I had in my head from watching movies and TV shows and stuff like that. Um, so, but I loved conducting and I actually worked on that a lot, which ended up being another really good thing that I did once I moved to New York and started pursuing Broadway because broad, almost every Broadway show has a conductor of some sort. So those were good skills that I acquired there too. Did you wind up using those skills on Broadway? Yeah. Yeah. I have been able to conduct some shows. It's been wonderful. That's amazing. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. So you got your degree and you said, you know what? I want to do film scores. Did you think about going to LA or was it New York? How did you wind up getting to New York city? Uh, It was a circuitous route. Uh, Was it direct? Um, the woman that I was dating at the time when, I, when we both graduated from college, we took trips to each of the big cities, LA, Nashville, and New York. And we, to basically get a feel for them and see where we might fit in. And we originally decided on LA because she was gonna be a model and I was gonna you know, do Hollywood soundtracks and you know, film scores and that kind of thing. So, We almost moved to L.A. at the very last minute. She changed her mind and wanted to be a country singer. So we 
And I was like, okay, whatever. I can go to Nashville. I can play. There's, you know, and hot country was the thing at the time. Country music was exploding as the most popular music in the country at the time. This was early nineties now. And I think Garth Brooks was on the scene and like just redefining what country meant. And so we ended up moving to Nashville together. Um, and so that's how I ended up there. And I got a gig really pretty quickly and started touring right within probably a month or so of, of landing in Nashville. Wow. And so I just, I spent the next three years basically on the road. Who were you with? Uh, well, I, let's see, I played with um, a co- country comedy duo called Pinkard and Bowden, who I didn't know at the time, but they were massive country stars. And they were, I call them the Weird Al Yankovic of country music because they would take popular songs and rewrite the words to them in a, in a highly hysterical fashion. And so we, I toured with them for about a year and a half and then they stopped touring and I immediately bounced onto another gig uh, who, with an artist named Doug Stone, who at the time was known as the, the country balladeer. He like sang all the love songs and had all these platinum records. And so it was really cool. I was touring all over the country with these big stars and playing big arenas. It was wild, you know, and I had a blast. It was a blast, but ultimately I was on the bus and not, I didn't ever sleep in my own bed. I didn't see my girlfriend who was back in Nashville. And this is before cell phones and the internet and everything. So it was really hard to keep in touch with your friends and family. And I felt so isolated being out on the road. I didn't, I didn't like it. And um, because you'd come back into town and maybe we'd have a week off and I'd try to play some gigs in town, but everybody would say, Oh, well you're out with Doug Stone. So, you know, you're busy. And so they wouldn't call you. Even if you had like a month off, you know, we would get a month off in the winter or so, uh, like around December, January, a month, a month or two that most of the artists would take off. And I couldn't, I could barely get arrested in Nashville because no one knew who I was. Cause Oh, you're one of the road guys. Mm. There were all these clicks, you know, it's like, you're a road guy. I wanted to be a studio guy. I wanted to be, you know, be one of the, the, what they call them, uh, the A session, what they call them, the master sessions players, the A, A sessions. I think that's what they were called. And there were like four or five guys who did them all. Really? They were great, great drummers, all great, but they did them all. Cause that was that click. And the road guys did the road gigs the session guys did the session gigs and I was frustrated. I was like, but I don't want to just live on the road. I want to play sessions. I want to play with all these different people. And I got frustrated and that's how I started thinking about what else I I could do. What else is there for me to do other than be on the road and tour with country artists. So that's where the New York seed started to get planted. When I went um, on a little it wasn't a little. I went on a family reunion a couple of years ago, and we drove down from here all the way to Eufaula, Alabama, and we stopped in Nashville uh, for a day, uh-huh. uh, maybe like a half a day or whatever. But we went down to the area. I forgot the name of that street where all the bars are. Uh, uh, Beale Street in oh in Nashville. Nashville Broadway. Okay. Yeah, Broadway. You said that there was a session click a road kind of click was there a, like a bar scene kind of click too? everybody like, you know, our bleaker street or, 
you know, Sixth Street in Austin. Well, is- yeah, there's in Nashville, there's what they call Music Row. And at the time, it was Music Row was basically these two long streets in downtown. And they were full of old houses that had been turned into recording studios and publishing companies. So every house was like full of musicians and songwriters and players. And um, that's like where the whole, at the time, the whole music industry was basically in Music Row. And you could just go up and down them and hear people writing the next, you know, big song that Reba McIntyre was going to be singing or whatever. Um, It was very cool. It's a very small town feel, even though it's a large city. And it was very approachable. You know, I started producing and songwriting while I was there in Nashville, trying to, you know, break out and do more than just play on the road. And I was able to get meetings with every single uh, country music label at the time, either with the A&R person or with the president of the label. And I would walk in and I would play my songs or pitch my artists that I was producing with the president of a label. And that's unheard of. You know, you wouldn't think to get to go to New York City and be able to have that kind of access to the big high power music executives the way that Nashville was, at least at the time. So I thought it was kind of cool. You know, everybody was very friendly and um, uh, uh, an open door policy, so to speak. Um, You had this access to the powerful players and people, the executives in the business. At least back then. I don't know. I haven't been back there much, so I don't, I don't know what it's like these days. <laughs> what made you want to leave that? Well, it was like I was saying, when I was on the road, I was just exhausted. And I never felt like I got to know, like when you're doing one-nighters with Doug Stone, who's a huge star at the time, right? And so you're playing, you're playing amphitheaters for 20,000 people. And it's really cool for that two hours that you're playing. But the rest of it is kind of a drag. It's kind of a grind. You are on the bus. You're usually driving overnight to the next town. So you're sleeping on the bus. Um, When you pull into the next city, you don't have a lot of time to like go and check the town out or or see what's going on. And I felt, um, I just felt like my life was kind of passing me by without me enjoying it a whole lot, except for those two hours that we would get to play every night. Like you go, you might do some radio drive time promo where you might have to get up at five in the morning and go to the record state, I mean, the radio station and perform a little on-air thing because you're promoting for ticket sales for that night's concert. And so I, and then you go back to the hotel and you maybe sleep for two hours and then you go to the venue and you're setting up and you have sound check and then you're eating some bad catering that's, you know, in the back, in the locker room at the, <laughs> at the arena that you're playing in that night. And then, you know, and then you wait and if you're, depending where you are on the bill, you might be one of the opening acts or if you're the headliner, then you sit around and wait for your slot. You're not, I just didn't feel like I was living a whole lot. You know, I I felt like I was just getting through 22 hours of the day just to get to those two hours and those two hours were great. But then it was all over again the next day and you're away from your friends and family, like I said. And it might've just been the nature of that kind of touring. Um, but I got really burnt out with it and depressed at when I would get back into town and no one would take me seriously as a drummer as, Oh, well, yeah, let's call, let's call Larry to play the session, you know, next week for Garth Brooks or whatever. 
because, oh, no, Larry's out with Doug Stone, so don't even call him, you know. And I just, I was getting really frustrated. And um, I met, I was doing a jazz cruise, this one-off jazz cruise uh, on a cruise ship where they, you know, brought in all these jazz artists. And I was lucky enough to be there for, for this one week. And I met a bunch of cats from New York, a bunch of jazz cats. And they were asking me what I was doing in Nashville. And I was like, oh, I'm doing this and this and this, and you know, but I'm kind of frustrated. And they said, hey, well, if you ever come through New York, you know, someone who can play all the stuff you do, if you play jazz and you play country and you play rock and you play pop, you know, you probably work a lot in New York because all the Broadway shows these days, they all have all these different stuff, these styles in them. You should come and check it out. And I never really thought that was a thing to do. And so they planted the seed in my head. And luckily they were nice enough to say, if you ever come through New York, you know, let me know, we'll get together. And so I actually did call up a couple of those guys that I met and made a special trip to New York just to check out the scene when we, we had a weekend off. And they were so nice and they introduced me to a couple people and I went and sat in some Broadway pits. What was the first show that you, that you sat in and saw? Um, do you remember? Yep. It was Damn Yankees. And it was with Ray Marchica, who was, was, is, in, you know, is one of the greatest drummers in New York City still to this day. And he ended up being kind of a mentor to me when I moved here um, because I didn't know what I was doing. And he had already been doing Broadway shows for a long time at that point. But I was just, um, and a very young David Chase was conducting. I think he had maybe just had taken over the show uh, maybe just before I sat there or whatever, but um, I sat in that pit and I couldn't believe the level of musicianship. It was incredible. And what they were doing in there and how, uh, how electric it was and they were doing, and it was live and it was all happening. This huge orchestra was all playing together in these big dance numbers. And there was a whole cast up on stage and everybody singing and dancing and like, just, they were swinging away so hard. And I was like, wow, I had no idea that this kind of cool, you know, music scene existed. And so it really opened my eyes to, and I started thinking about, maybe this is more my scene. You know, I always wanted to live in New York. I love New York. Maybe I'll come here and, and I'll still conduct for movie scores. But I think I got to come here and check it out. What year but yeah, Ray, Ray was so great that band was so swinging yeah what year was that hmm. i would say 90 95 maybe 94 or 95 somewhere around in there and so it took me a, it took me a minute to get my nerve up and for the right moment to like leave doug stone's band because i was the band leader with doug stone so it was kind of a hard gig to leave i was making a ton of money you know, we were, we, we had a great, I mean, back then you didn't leave a gig like that. And then when I finally did give my notice, everybody thought I was crazy. Wow. And they were like, what are you, what are you doing? You got another gig? And I was like, no, I just, I'm going to move to New York. I don't know what's going to happen. You know. <laughs> so um, everybody thought I was crazy and I probably was because I left a really great gig to come and do, I don't know what. 
I had no, I, I had no plan. I had no, you know, I, but I had saved a lot of money. I saved $10,000 and I said, I'm moving to New York and I'm going to see what happens. And I'm not going to do anything else, but I'm going to like go and see every show and I'm going to meet every musician that I can. And I'm going to go to every jam session that I can find out that exists in town. And I'm just going to see if, if I can make something happen here. Cause I love it. I loved the energy of it. So you saved $10,000 and in the first month it was gone. And then you had to, no, <laughs> man, that's really true. It's really true. I made, I stretched it out and made it last for three months. Yikes. Seriously. I mean, I mean, you know, it's expensive, and everybody needs man. to know how expensive it is to live in New York. And if you're not, wanting or prepared to do any court, any kind of survival job, so to speak, you're going to burn through cash, like nobody's business, you know, and it was gone in three months. So, um, but luckily for me, I had enough kind of going on with, with my career before I got here that it opened some doors a bit quicker. Um, and, and because I had met Ray Marchica, I'd met those two cats on the jazz cruise and then met Ray Marchica and they introduced me to other people in the scene because they saw I was serious about it. Still, nobody really knew much about me except that, oh, well, you're the Nashville guy, right? And I was like, no, I'm, no, I do everything. I, I, I didn't want to be pigeonholed. And I kept trying to tell everybody, no, no, I don't, I don't do just country music. I play everything. I play percussion. I conduct. I do, you know. So I was very, um, I just wanted to make sure that everybody knew when they met me that I could do all these different things. And so I did my best to do that. And so I started, I would get a little gig here and a little gig there and started to, to piece them all together. But they were all different. You know, like, I, yeah, I did do one country gig when I first moved to town. But then, I, like, the next week, I did a, a gig on timpani at a church or something. And I just started trying to accumulate some New York credits. Because that was one of the other things that I learned really quick was when people, when, you, when I was meeting people in New York right away, they'd say, okay, well, what have you done? And I'd say, well, I did this and this and this. And then they'd say, no, but I mean, in New York, what have you done in New York? Because that's different. And I had somebody say straight out to me once, I don't care what you've done anywhere else. Cause that means nothing to me. Dang. I want to know what you've done in New York. And so until you've done something in New York, don't bother me. You know, I had somebody lay it straight out to me like that. Wow. And, it, and I kind of get it. Because New York, especially Broadway, is unlike, and you know this, it's unlike any other scene anywhere else. It's its own world. And the stuff you are asked to do in theater is unlike what you'd be asked to do on any other gig. So it's very much its own world. And people need to know that you understand that world, that you take all your stuff that you know from all these other worlds, but that you put it together and understand what's needed for this world, the theatrical world, because it's so different. So you started to, did you start subbing after that with help from Ray Marchica and other people that were already doing shows before? Yeah. Yeah. It, and for me, I know that I was very lucky. I was very much in the right place, the right time. 
and I had met the right people. Um, Ray introduced me to, um, he, he gave me a bunch of names of, of different Broadway musicians to go and sit in their pits at their shows, right? Just to keep expanding my understanding of how different every show could be. And one of the names he gave me was Michael Hinton, who was the percussionist at the time at Miss Saigon, which was a huge, giant hit show at the time. And so then, like the next, when did this happen? It was really pretty soon. It was maybe within the first two months of me moving to New York, I met Michael Hinton. And um, I went and sat in the pit with him at Miss Saigon and How Howard Joins was the drummer at the time. And I sat in there, they had, they had like a third of the, of the orchestra pit was taken up by just the two of them. It was massive percussion and drum setup. They had every mallet instrument in there and every kind of gong and um, Asian instrument that you could think of in this show. It was massive percussion section. And I sat in there and they continued to, they proceeded to just blow my mind with what they were doing because they were playing a score that was written for three people just with the two of them. It was written for three percussionists in London in the original version, and they had to reduce it to two people for Broadway because of space. And I was just flabbergasted. I could not, I could barely understand what was happening, barely keep up with the music, you know, because there are like four different staves of music. And I'm just like, this is the coolest thing. And, and Michael, admitted to me later, he saw this look of joy and glee on my face that he hadn't seen from anybody before. Cause most people would like be terrified. And they told me that a lot of people would go into that pit and they would leave at intermission because they were so like freaked out and overwhelmed by it. But I was just, I was like, this is most, and I was like a kid in a candy store. There it was like every kind of percussion instrument was in there. I just thought it was thrilling and I had the best time. And so Michael, um, started asking me a lot of questions after the, the show that night. And, you know, one of them was, do you think you could ever do something like this? And I said, well, yeah, I haven't, I haven't played, you know, the mallet stuff since college and, and all the timpani and stuff, but, but yeah, I, I know how to do all this stuff. And he said, okay. And he gave me a copy of the music and he gave me two cassette tapes of the show and said, all right, go learn it let me know when you're ready and I'll give you a date. And I was just floored. And luckily for me at the time, what I didn't know is that they had been having percussion subs, some go into that show over and over and just crash and burn and get fired. You know, like, <laughs> like they crash during the performance or they get fired immediately after what it was just such an unreasonably difficult book to play. And they couldn't find subs, especially on his book. They were having a really hard time. And uh, most people would say no, because they were smarter than I was. <laughs> they said, I'm not stepping into that lion's den. But I didn't know anything. And I was naive and I was optimistic and I was just full of joy that someone was giving me a shot. And so I went and I worked my butt off and it took me a month. I worked every single day, five days a week, I, back then at that theater, you could go into that theater. They had arranged to allow the percussionists to play in that pit during the day if there wasn't a rehearsal. 
And it was a really unheard of thing back then. Like you didn't do that, but they knew this show was so difficult for the percussionists. They wanted to help them. So I would show up at like 9 a.m. every morning, barely awake and shed that book over and over for a month. And I finally learned it and felt ready. And he gave me, I said, I called him and told him I'm ready to go in. He gave me a one show. I went in. Luckily, I nailed it. And the next day my phone was ringing because everybody in town knew that that was the hardest show that had ever been written at that point. And if you survived that, <laughs> you could do anything. And I was just, I mean, I knew it was my one shot, whatever. I didn't know how difficult it was. I didn't know the history. I didn't know anything. Luckily I was naive about it. I just knew it was my shot and I needed to come in and ace it. Otherwise someone was going to put me on a Greyhound bus and send me out of town. I just knew the, the importance of that moment. And I put everything I had into that. And luckily it went well. And then it just snowballed from there. You're lucky they didn't give you a ticket right back to Nashville. I know. I know. <laughs> That's what I was worried about. Kid, here's a, here's a, exactly. Port authorities right down there. Exactly. That's, <laughs> I totally had that fear. I thought that's what would happen if I didn't nail it. If I made one mistake, I thought I'd be, nev I'd never get another shot. Like mm. I really felt the pressure of that. You survived. And then you, you started getting calls because people knew that you can do this particular kind of work. Did it lead to a, a show that you had of your own or did you start subbing on many different shows? Like that was a percussion book that you were doing. Did right. you start subbing on drum set for anyone? Yeah, I did. Um, luckily I had another, uh, so as you know, the Broadway uh, world, everybody knows everybody you know, and word travels around very, very quickly. So um, an, a person, I had been sharing the studio space with some other Broadway drummers, uh, a rehearsal space, and the kind of the boss of that um, studio, the guy who ran that room um, was a guy named John Redsecker. And he was playing a show called Beauty and the Beast at the time on drums. And he had heard me playing drums, you know, I'd be rehearsing in the studio or whatever. And I was, and I was bothering him all the time. Like, Hey, you know, I want to come and can I come and sit in the pit with you? And he let me come and sit in the pit with him. And once I played really well at Miss Saigon, he said, okay, I'll, I'll give you a shot at something for me. I need a new sub and I'll give you a shot. Um, and he was, but he didn't really know my drum set playing and as no, no one really did, you know, so he really put me through, um, I wouldn't say the ringer, but he was, he was doing what was expected of a chair holder, which is being responsible for the chair and making sure that if you bring someone into sub for you on that chair, that you're going to bring in a good musician and they're going to do a good job. So he had me play some stuff for him and I watched the show, you know, probably five or six times or something like that. And that was the next book that I got to learn, which ended up also being a really good thing for me because now not only did everybody know that I could play Miss Saigon, which was the hardest show in town, but that I could also play a very orchestral drum set and dance show because there were tons of production numbers in that, in that show. And so I went into sub there and did well there and that helped me get even more work. So 
the moral of that story is the more you can do, the more different things you can do, the more work you're going to get. And there was a point. So things just went crazy from then on. I just basically went from learning one book to the next book to the next book. And I was subbing nine different books at one point. This is probably a year and a half down the road, maybe two years after I moved to town. I was subbing on nine different books. I ended up subbing on the drum set book at Miss Saigon for How He Joins. Um, I subbed on the drum set book at Les Mis. And so I was doing percussion and drum set books all over town, subbing for them all. And then um, eventually the drummer at um, Jekyll and Hyde, that show left because he got another show and I was subbing that show. And so the, the conductor of that show asked if I would take over that chair when that drummer left. So that's how I got my first chair on Broadway was I assumed an, a, a drum set and percussion book that of an existing running show because I was subbing there. So wait, you were doing nine shows at the same time, subbing nine shows? Yeah. You yeah. were like the Sean McDaniel before Sean McDaniel. I was. <laughs> the original SM. That's right. <laughs> or I should say Larry, Sean was, was the second coming of you. <laughs> well, I was very happy when I met Sean. Did you interview Sean yet? Yes, I did. Yeah, because you'll hear all this. I met him in Dallas when he was, I think, probably 16 years old. And I had gone out on the Les Mis tour to give somebody a vacation for a week. And I walked out of the stage door after one of the shows and there was Sean McDaniel standing, 16-year-old Sean McDaniel standing there and saying, hey, Larry Lelly, I know who you are and my name's Sean and I'm going to come in from Broadway someday. And I said, awesome, dude. Well, call me when you get to town. And he did. Like four, five years later, he called me after he'd gone to, I think, North Texas or something. Mm-hmm. And so by that point, I had already had, I had a show of my own. I can't remember which one it was at the time. But I had him come sub for me. I was one of the guys who let him sub when he first moved to town. Yeah, and then he did the same thing. He probably had like 10, 10 different books. Yeah, I think it was oh, 11, I think. <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> yeah, I was about to give him like a, an, a special Broadway Journey 101 award for like yeah. most shows subbed at one time. <laughs> Man. It's, it's chaotic when you're doing that because every, as you know, every pit is different and has a different vibe and a different style and a different sound. And the drummer's got a complete, the drummer or percussionist has a completely different setup. So you have to be able to go into whatever and just be that thing for that night. And then the next day, or sometimes you're that for the matinee, right? And then you go and play a different show that night and you have to take that cap off, whoever that was, you know, say I was, Subbing for Clayton. I had to go in and beat Clayton that day, the matinee. And then I'm going to sub for Sean McDaniel that night. And I had to go be Sean that night in a completely different vibe and a different show, different feel, different sound, different kit. It's really challenging, but I loved it. I loved it. I just remember doing some pit hopping, I guess we can say that. Before I got any too proud, I wanted to see what it was like doing other shows. That's why I went to see you yeah. at Come From Away. I went to see Gary Stelkson play um, School of Rock. Yeah. Just to think about those two different styles right there. Yeah. I mean, your style playing that show and Gary rocking out to School of Rock. Oh, yeah. If you had to play 
both of those shows in the same day. It's like you got, like you said, you have to be willing to take off one hat and put on another and be a, be a chameleon yeah. Yeah. and just understand that style of music and that feel. It's, it's something else, but, and you guys yeah. are brave. <laughs> or foolish. You know? <laughs> but if you know, if you're hungry and you want to succeed, yeah. you have to put in the work and you have to do these kind of things in order for people to understand that you can do this and it makes you much more, um, I can't think of the right word, uh, valuable asset. Absolutely. Yeah. And it will get you a lot of work if you can be that kind of chameleon. Yeah, exactly. So Jekyll Hyde, you did that, and, and that ran for how many? Did it run for a it couple ran years? For like another that? year and a half after I took it over. Um, and I was very lucky back then um, because of all the people that I had been subbing for before I got that show. Um, one of them was Paul Pizzuti, who is a great, great drummer and has done a ton of Broadway shows. Um, but one of the music directors he has worked for for a long time, and this is very uh, timely right now, um, was Stephen Sondheim's musical director, Paul Gemignani, who not many people know, but he started as a drummer. Paul Gemignani started his career as a drummer. And he rose up through the ranks to become one of the best, the biggest legendary musical directors of all time for Broadway. And so when Jekyll and Hyde announced that it was closing, Paul Gemignani had a new show that was starting out that, that Paul Pizzuti had done all the workshops for, but Paul had a really great show that he didn't want to leave at the time. He was playing at Kiss Me Kate, which was a big hit at the time. He didn't want to leave. And so Paul Gemignani asked Paul Pizzuti, well, I, you know, who, who should I get to play this new show that I got coming in? And he said, Paul Pizzuti said, oh, you should call Larry because Jekyll and Hyde's about to close. And that new show has got some country elements in it. And he'll know all about that stuff because he lived in Nashville. So you should call him. And so we got our closing notice at Jekyll and Hyde. And maybe days later, I get this call from, uh, from Ron Sell, who was Gemignani's contractor. And, and left a message on my, on my machine at home. This was, you know, back in the day when you had a, like a, a tape, a cassette tape. I think I kept the cassette tape of this because it was, you know, hey, Larry, this is Ron Sell. Uh, Paul Gemignani wants to meet you about a new show. You know, wants, you know come over next week. When, let, let us know when you can come over and meet him next week. And I was freaking out because I had known of who Paul Gemignani was for a long time. Uh, because of all the cast albums and stuff that I've been listening to at the library as a kid, you know, look, always looking at who's playing on all the records. Right. And so I was freaking out and um, here I was, I was going to go meet this legendary guy. What was going to happen, you know, and he just had me come and meet him between shows one day in the, in the house at his, at the theater that he was at. And he basically just wanted to talk to me and see if I was a cool dude. Because he believed, he trusted Paul Pizzuti that I could play. He just wanted to know what kind of person I was. So I went in there and we sat there and chatted for maybe 20 or 30 minutes. And then he said, okay, great. That's, what I, that's all I needed to know. It, uh, I want you to do the gig. So Ron will call and give you the details. It was like that. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is how it happens. You know, like you, you play one show and then it closes 
And then somebody knows your, your show closed, so they call you and you do the next one. And you just, this is how it works, right? You just go from one to the next. And I was like, this is amazing. And I'm working with Paul Gemignani now as my, one of my heroes. And I'm just over the moon. Well, the short version of this really long story is the show ended up being not very good and very poorly received. And it closed in a few weeks. Ooh. And I was completely unemployed. I mean, it was a blast. And I met working with Gemignani was a dream come true. And from that moment on, I would work with him anywhere. But that particular show was not a hit. It was a flop, as they call it. And we closed within weeks and I had nothing. Nothing. I was like on unemployment, you know, <laughs> and mm. I, was, I was served a dose of reality really quickly. Like, oh, this isn't how it always goes. <laughs> you don't just go from gig to gig. And then I think, um, I can't remember how long it was before I got my next show, but, but I was back to subbing after that show that I did with Paul Gemini was called Tom Sawyer. It was a beautiful little show. Actually, the music was really, really good. It just, as a show, it wasn't working on stage for whatever reason, but, um, I can't remember exactly, but it was probably a year or two before I got my next show. So I was back to subbing freelancing for the next, however long that was. And so the cool thing is, is you can go back to shows that are still running. Like I went back to Miss Saigon because that show was still running. So I went back to subbing there, but you have to learn all these new shows. And this is something we need to talk about is the amount of time it takes to learn a show. Like yeah. So how long does it take? How long does it take you to learn a show? Well, every show is different and it depends on how difficult it is. You know, uh, Miss Saigon took me a month working five days a week, almost eight hours a day. You know, when, when I wasn't in the pit working on that show, I was in my apartment air drumming, with, you know, playing the score, listening to it, reading the music and air drumming, pretend, you know, doing what I needed to do. Um, that was a really intense one of the, it was the hardest one I ever had to learn, but um, the fastest I have ever had to learn a show was there was an emergency situation at how to succeed in business. That drummer was leaving and they really wanted me to take over the show, but I had never subbed there. I, I was working on another show and my show had just closed. So I was available and they knew I was available but I needed to officially play the show once in order for the contractor to approve me for being hired because I'd never played the show. They didn't, they didn't want to hire me for that particular show without actually hearing me play the book. So I, it was kind of a quasi audition, but the audition was learn the show in three days and play it. And so I had to lock myself in a friend's garage with a, I recreated the setup in my friend's garage and I basically, I, that was probably 12 to 14 hour days I spent for three days straight. Three days. That's yeah. fast. Wow. It was insane. It was insane. I don't know, man. Typically, it depends how busy you are too with life. You know, if you're working a ton, you're freelancing all over the place, you have to grab practice time when you can to learn a show. So it could take, a few weeks to learn a show or other times there's a little more pressure and they need you to do one particular date 
that's maybe, you know, in a week and you say, yes, you can do it or no, you can't, you know, you got to be honest about it. If someone asks you, Hey, I need you to cover Saturday night because I got a, a gig with sting, you know, at Madison square garden. And I know I need to be off that night. You need to be able to say, yes, I can do it or no, I can't. You know, you don't want to say yes if you don't know that you can do it. Cause if you show up Saturday night and sit in that chair, you better be able to bring the goods. Otherwise Greyhound ticket out of town again. You know? <laughs> Broadway is, is kind of unforgiving that way. That's and true. New York's music scene overall, you've got to always show up with the goods because if you don't, there's a line of 20 other people and probably more that will sit right on that seat and do what you, you couldn't do that night. You know, Shannon it's so Ford. competitive here. Shannon Ford said, you got to bring your A game. Yeah, always. Exactly. Exactly. No matter what it is, no matter what kind of gig you're doing. Yep. So how to succeed in business. Yeah. You took over for that? I did. But- I ended up taking over for that, that chair. That was great. That was a great show too. I, I love, that's kind of what I ended up getting known for if mm. I was going to um, start to develop kind of who, who is, what, what do I bring to the table, right? And I ended up being the guy who was really good for dance shows because I was, I studied big band music so much in school and I love playing for dancers. Um, and I ended up just being kind of that guy. I also was lucky enough to get the, the drum chair on the producers very early in my career here. Uh, I would say within the first five years I was here or something. Or so I got, I got the producer's gig, huge dance show. So, and I loved that. And I was happy to be known as, you know, the dance, the dance show drummer, because I loved um, developing the drum books too. And so when you're the drummer on a dance show, they bring you in from the first rehearsal with all the dancers and the choreographer and the director, and you're in there making up the parts as you go along. Some days you don't even have sheet music. They just say, okay, this is a swing tune in the key of C. Just play along and do what you feel. There's a lot of that. So that's where, you know, as I was talking before about learning by ear, learning to play by ear, that that really helped me out a lot because I was just listening and playing along with what I was hearing. And then I learned to play along with what I was seeing on stage as they started staging the show. And the choreographers would say, hey, Larry, you know, when when this dancer kicks, you know, their left leg up over their head like that, give me a little something. And so I had to make that up and figure out what that meant. And sometimes it was trial and error. Like, no, I don't like that. Try something else. You know, something that's more green. I want a green. I want to hear green here. You know, that kind of stuff happens. It's for real, you know, and you got to figure that out. But I loved it. I when loved I, it. <laughs> so true. All this, you know, I'm, I'm nodding my head for those who can't see me, but I'm just yeah. saying, yep, exactly. Because yeah. yeah. when I was, uh, working with Sergio on Memphis and Ain't Too Proud and yeah. Edgar, you know, they'd say, all right, when I do this, I want to shoot there. I'm like, okay, yeah. this is shoot, S-H-O-O-M-P-T. <laughs> right, right, right. Write that down. But you have to, once you understand what they're trying to say and you yeah. can interpret it through your instrument, yeah, exactly. they like that. Yeah. You know, like, give me so a pop here. And a, again. Yeah, exactly. Because you, you understand what they want, what they need. And it takes yep. time to, to figure it out. I'm sure, you know, other 
when I've worked on other shows, I didn't understand all that stuff, like working on, I didn't really do much on altar boards. I think I just came in there. I did what they told me to do, but there were times where Christopher. Catelli? Yes. Yes. Catelli. Yeah. Yeah. But he would, he would do, you know, he'd ask for stuff too, but that was more Lynn Schenkel orchestrating everything. But each choreographer wants a certain type of thing. And if you could, give them what they want, you'll definitely work a lot. So speaking of that, did you originate the drum book for the producers? No, I didn't. I took over that drum book. The original drummer was Cubby O'Brien. Oh, that's right. Uh, People may remember him as Cubby the Mouseketeer, the tap dancing Mouseketeer, because that was him. That was Cubby O'Brien. He was a great, great show drummer. Grew up playing all that stuff and all those TV Variety shows back in the 70s, you know, like uh, I think Sonny and Cher. And like he played with the Carpenters and like all that stuff uh, that they would do back then. Those variety hours. Uh, He was a great show drummer. So he originated that book and he left to go do another show with Bernadette Peters. And I had just started summing there. And so it was another thing that like I was very, very fortunate to be in the right place at the right time. Had I not been subbing there, I probably wouldn't have taken over that gig. But luckily, I had just started there, and that conductor liked me and asked for me to take over the book when Cubby left. That ended up being a great gig. I think it ran another five years or something after that. Yeah, it was great. Being the chairholder for a couple different shows at this point, what what did you look for when hiring subs to sub for you? Find out more in part two of my conversation with Larry Lelly. If you like what you hear on the show, subscribe to the Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter at broadwaydrumming101.substack.com. That's substack, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K.com. The Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter is your one-stop shop for everything you'll need to know about playing drums for Broadway musicals. When you subscribe to the newsletter, you'll learn about what it takes to be a successful pit musician with content delivered directly to your email inbox two to three times a week. For $5 a month or $50 a year, you'll have a backstage pass to the world of a Broadway drummer playing on a hit show. As a paying subscriber, you'll receive behind the scenes access to the life of a musician who makes a living on Broadway. You'll also be able to read every post, not just those occasional free ones. You'll get access to all newsletter issues in the archives and have an ability to participate in subscriber-only comments and events. If you become a founding member for a gift of only $75, you'll receive discounted private drum lessons and a 25% discount on future promotional products. If you'd like to make a direct contribution to the production of this show, you can reach us at Venmo, at Clayton-Craddock, Cash App at Syncopated, that's C-I-N-C-O-P-A-T-E-D, or PayPal at Clayton-Craddock. Any amount of support will be appreciated. Thank you for listening.